After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Aen near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put into prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They don't mention who this passerby is who has the question, and they don't actually give it much more ink than than what we've got right here. So it seems like it's just simply a question that launches into the bigger issue that we have in view. And here this is. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who's from earth belongs to the earth, speaks as one from the earth. He's talking about himself. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified or has put their seal to the fact that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, that being Jesus. For God gives the Spirit without limit. That is to Jesus. As a matter of fact, as a side note, the rabbis viewed all the prophets having received the Spirit but with limit. But Jesus, unlike all the other prophets, superseding all the other messengers from God, Jesus had it without limit. The Father loves the Son, has placed everything into His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Amen. I've got one point today. And it's simply this. I've got friends in low places. Those are good friends to have. Exalted friends, friends that are all that, are not necessarily the friends that you're going to be able to count on when the chips are down. But Jesus had a beautiful friend in a low place. He had his boy, and his boy had his back, and that was JTB. (laughs) But now, if you're John the Baptist, there's a lot of reason to perhaps have moments of thinking, I got it going on. 
I'm, I'm not up in Jerusalem. I'm a, I'm a day's journey from anywhere in the middle of a desert that looks more like a moonscape. And there's no reason anyone would ever come out here except for one reason. Me. And that was the only reason that they would come out there is because of John's and John's message, John's charisma, John's zeal, John's uncompromising holiness, John's clarity of who God is and what he wants for every one of us. And when you can get yourself out of the way and really bring all of that with no filters, that's a compelling thing. And it's no wonder that people were going out to see John. And John was down in the valley, in low places. But what we don't appreciate is the degree to which that was his soul's desire. That he was only here in fulfillment of the scriptures that he loved. Malachi, that spoke of, I will send a messenger ahead of the one. Ahead of the Deliverer. Ahead of the Hero. Ahead of the Messiah. And when they asked, are you the Messiah? John was like, how dare you? Don't you ever. Don't you ever put that on me. I am just simply one calling in the wilderness. I am just simply one pointing the way. But unfortunately, as John is pointing the way to Jesus... His followers get a bit confused. Kind of like my dog gets confused. When I want to tell Toby, Toby, look over there. Look over there. Lindsay has a banana. Our dog likes bananas. Look over there. And what does he look like? What does he look at? He looks at my finger. No, not over here. Over there. And then oh, it's just too impossible at that point. But, but sometimes when humility hasn't really washed over our souls, we could be the same way. We exalt people. We exalt ourselves. We look at the finger of the one pointing the way rather than to the one to whom they're pointing. God forbid we, we, we get caught up in that ourselves. I'm an assistant Bible talk leader now. I, I now actually have uh, you know, kind of superintendence over all the ushers right now. And praise God for all of that service that goes on but my goodness if there's any bit of that service that goes on if there's any bit of a title that is or isn't there and it in some way begins to grip at your heart it, it, it's a time to stop staring at the finger and it's a, it's a time to recognize that I am at a place where I need to imitate not just John but Jesus as well because it's only through that that we can really know the fullness that God has in store for every one of us. Look at what, what John says here. As, as one that has throngs of people coming to him. He is celebrity, deluxe. We get all the way 30 years into the book of Acts almost. 20 years into the book of Acts in Acts chapter 19. And he still has people that are following him. That's an enduring Legacy that he has that has made its way all the way up into Roman empires out from Syria, out from Jerusalem. I mean, John was the man. But yet, 
with all of that going on, he must have made sure in every time that he had before the Lord, in every activity that he did for the Lord, he must have made sure again and again that he had his heart, he had his head, he had his agenda in the right place. And he says, he must become greater, I must become less. Now that's the kicker bottom line. But right before that, he talks about the bride belongs to the bridegroom. Who does he mean by the bride? The bride is us. The bride is that crowd that is all around him. The bride is the bride of Christ. The bride is the redeemed people that God loves so dearly that he wants to see brought back to him again in full covenant intimacy. So his people, Jesus' people, people through the centuries, people in this auditorium, we're the bride. And for John the Baptist to think, and yes, they are my bride. They are, they, I am the, the head of this household, not, not by a long shot. And what he says is, I'm, I'm the bridegroom's friend. I'm the best man. And at that time, by law, the bridegroom, or the, 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 the best man to the, to the groom, the best man to the groom, by law, was never able to marry the bride, even if the groom dies. And so he was basically saying, no, no, no. By me describing it this way, you will never be mine. You will never be my people. You will always be his. And this will be a claim that I will never even presume to make. I am a conduit, nothing more. Maybe a lot less, but nothing more. But now when you get to this place of beautiful non-assertion of self, not worrying, did they, did they see me in the play? How did I come across? Did they hear me when I was up here? Oh, I, I hope they're going to, you know, kind of recognize the work that I put in and give me, you know, a, a little bit of plaudits for, for how I came across. I don't, speaking theoretically. It, it's, it's the worst of all conditions that every bit of service that we do for the Lord could be twisted by Satan to take you in just the opposite direction from where God wants your heart to be. Jesus wants your heart to be that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Every investment into Jesus, every investment into his cause, his mission, his gospel, every bit of that is meant to cause your heart to be there also. If we begin to notice that, even in an instant, it's time for us to humble ourselves out. And to recognize what that looks like when we go the other direction from what God's intended will is. Proverbs 16.5 tells us that. That God detests all the proud of heart. And you can be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. I hate that proverb. You know why I hate that proverb? Because so many times... Especially in conversations with one particular person in my life. To be named, never. 
is that I will talk with her and say, you know, hon, that's a good point you bring up. Thank you so much for pointing out how I could have driven more safely through that intersection. And I'm saying to myself at the time, nailed it. I may have actually even ended this lecture a little bit early right now because of the awesomeness of the expression of my humility. And then I'm reminded of Proverbs 16.5. God detests the proud of heart. Oh. Sure, I'm good and practiced at humility of expression, humility of facade, humility of dialogue, but what's going on here at the very same moment? Nailing it! Yeah! Oh, look at me now! Oh, I mean, Satan dances in that very moment. It's a delight to him. Why? Because pride is what made pride is what made the devil the devil. He probably had many moments exactly like that on his path towards ever hardening, calloused heart conditions. That's why we've got to be, I mean, frightened to the core. And and for me to not be self-satisfied after an interaction like that through such an intersection, but to to really realize, oh my, it's. It's time, it's time to prostrate myself. It's time to get before the Lord. It's time to really beg for a heart of flesh rather than that heart of stone. For, for God in His loving intervention and discipline to bring out the jackhammer, to bring out the callus that has gotten around my heart. But when it does happen, when it does happen, here's the beautiful dynamic that occurs. He writes, right after the bridegroom part, That joy is mine, and it is now complete. When we get to that place where we can know real humility, when we can embrace real humility, when we really do consider others before ourselves, when we really do subordinate our allegiance and affection and agenda and ambitions of life, all for the cause of Christ rather than for ourselves, and really do that, when we really no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died for us and was raised again, when we really walk in the shoes and the steps of imitation of John the Baptist, then we know, and we've known perhaps maybe in wonderful moments, or maybe in just little staccato moments, but we know in those moments, complete joy. You know, in those Days when my head hits the pillow and I was proud of heart but yet humble of words. My head doesn't hit the pillow with a soul satisfaction of joy that causes me to weep at the wonder of my life in Jesus. You know, I fall asleep feeling a little bit like a poser. Maybe a lot like there's something a bit more hollow inside of me. And here we have before us both John the Baptist and, my goodness, even more so Jesus. But let me encourage you. 
Take stock of what, what are your ambitions for this week? What is your agenda? How are you doing when, when someone has to point out something your way? And are you going about it with a selflessness that can deliver you to that place where you were always meant to be? Complete joy. Jesus wants that for every one of us as we sit here. Jesus wants every one of us to know with a kind of a bursting, overflowing of our heart, that kind of joy. But, paradoxically, it only comes through denial of self. But when it does come, it blows the lid off of the satisfaction of your soul, and it blows the lid off of the glass ceiling that would otherwise limit any one of us from what we could do in that agenda, that ambition, that affiliation, and that effort. Because when we do, this is what Jesus says about that. And this is in John's Gospel. Very, very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Hallelujah. Have the legacy that God wants for you. Don't just be a single seed. Don't just surround yourself with yourself. At the end of the day, it's an ugly proposition. In one of the most famous moments in my life of embracing the exaltation of self is, is back when I was an undergrad at University of Pennsylvania. I say undergrad as if I went to graduate school. I don't have a master's in anything, by the way. So let's just say when I was in college, I'm going to get struck by lightning on this subject matter here. Uh, I had done some work for the university in, in development or raising funds. They, they called it alumni giving or annual alumni giving. And so the annual alumni giving campaign um, had, uh, had, had put a picture of me in the school newspaper because I had won some little competition that was there. And the pledges of our fraternity wanted to kidnap me uh, as a little tradition that they had. They would kidnap one of the, one of the brothers. And, and so they thought, well, how is it that we could trap this guy? What is it that we could use about him that could get him into a place where we can really, really put him in his place? And they thought, oh, why not appeal to his conceit, his arrogance, his pride? And so they did. They enlisted a, a friend of theirs, a girl, who called, called me and posed as one that said that the annual giving campaign was doing their annual brochure and they would like me to be the model for all of the pictures in the brochure. I didn't laugh at the time. I thought, makes sense. So I said, I'll agree to this little deal you have here. And you know what? Good on you for asking me. When's the photo shoot? And they said, oh, and they said, also, could you look nice? Could you maybe wear a suit for this thing? I was like, oh, sure. 
I look good in a suit. So the day comes and I'm ironing my suit that morning, getting ready to walk around the block over to the, the place where the photo shoot's going to occur. And, and as I'm ironing my suit, some of the pledges from the fraternity come in and sit on the couch while I'm there. And they ask me, why am I ironing my suit in the middle of a Tuesday morning? And I said, funny you should ask. <laughs> and beginning with my earliest efforts at fundraising for the university and making my way through all of the accolades and awards that I had achieved and ultimately even showing them pictures from the school newspaper and then enthralling them with their imagination of what it would be like to have the catalog featuring me again in it. I told them the whole story. And to their credit, they sat there stone-faced without smiling during the whole process. <laughs> then more of them, apparently word got out, more of them started coming in. Hey, tell us too, tell us too. And so I did. Then it was time to walk over, so I got the suit on, you know, kind of put moose when I had hair up there, and you know, all of this was going really well. And as I'm walking, you know, the three, four that are sitting with me walk along with me, and then two or three others join. And I'm like, wow, this is a lot of you. It's like half of you. What, 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 what brings you all here right now? And they're like, oh, we've got to go over to, uh, to, to Walnut Street as well. So I was like, I thought nothing of it, of course. Why? Because I have surrounded myself with myself. And then, as we get right before the address where I'm supposed to, to kind of jump in for the photo shoot, suddenly a cargo van with no windows pulls up, doors swing open, two or three more of the pledges jump out, all the five that are with me suddenly grab me, throw me into the van, begin to duct tape me up every possible way, and as they begin to duct tape my mouth, I, I say, wait, 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 before you duct tape my mouth. And they're like, what? And then I wrote about this in my, my repentance book. Uh, I said, with words that would likely bring shame upon my family for many generations to come, I then said, but you don't understand. You can't kidnap me right now. I have a photo shoot. Then, they were happy to inform me at that moment. My nickname was Tex. They said, Tex, there never was a photo shoot. <laughs> and at that point, they needed no one to restrain me. I fell into a despair and rocked in the fetal position in the back of that cargo van. Only to be debased for the entire evening and rolled out in the middle of, of, of the uh, kind of the social district of, of, of our city, uh, having had my body painted, my, 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 my clothing disheveled, and the ultimate kind of uh, pile of embarrassment that I could be later on. But you know what? I didn't care about that. I cared about that moment in the van, hearing there never was a photo shoot. You know, Yes, it's a, it's a silly, funny story, but it's, it's the most overt version of what goes on when someone needs to correct me. It's the most overt version that goes on when I know that our Bible talk is going to go out door knocking, and I think, ah, but 
maybe I have more important things to do. It's the most just egregious, egregious display of what goes on when I, when I realize maybe it's more important for me to get out and start doing stuff rather than pray before any of that goes on. And, and for us, we've got John the Baptist and we've got Jesus here. But we've also got a promise. We've got a promise that your life can have a multiplier effect. Your life can be filled with an abiding joy that satisfies your soul. Your life can have breakthrough. The only thing that has to happen is for every one of us here to truly become less so that Jesus can become more. To become nothing so that Jesus can become everything. And when that happens, watch out Hampton Roads because here we come. Seeds ready to multiply. Amen.